The reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 12. I'm going to read from verses 1 to 12. So here's a confession. I hadn't arranged for anyone to preach today. And what being Dean of Chapel means is when there is no one else you have to do it. I realize that is the appointment. And so I chose this passage because I thought I had a sermon that maybe it would fit. That's the confession. I'm in good company because you've all done it, actually, I suspect. But actually, my conscience, and I do have one, my, my conscience wouldn't allow me to get away with that. And I kept hearing myself say time and time again to people in the preaching class, preach the text, not your sermon. And so I then decided that I could only do what at times in life when you're preaching you'll have to do, is go on and do the work. Take the text, sit with it, consult the commentaries, wrestle with it. Stay with it. Preachers are like actors in at least one sense. Sometimes you have to simply get up, do the work, and deliver on demand. So today I'm going to offer you the work. And I hope that that introductory story, which I haven't really planned to say, would be, as Caroan would teach us, a teaching moment that sometimes as preachers you get to preach because you want to and sometimes you do the job I'm going to offer you the work Mark chapter 12 reading from verse 1 Jesus then began to speak to them in parables a man planted a vineyard he put a wall around it he dug a pit for the wine press and he built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head. They treated him shamefully. He sent still another and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then? Will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him. Because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him. And they went away. 
From this parable it becomes pretty clear that the idea of living in a designated area of land protected by some sort of security hedge or perhaps we could call it wall or a metal barrier and guarded by border towers so that the inhabitants of the land can live in it and enjoy the fruit of their labours protected from the incursion of bad others from this parable we see that that idea has got quite ancient as well as modern appeal and the appeal is understandable we should know the appeal if you listened to the news last night you would have heard the appeal articulated this is an image which promises safety and security and well-being to those who are in the land it is an appeal not only that the notion of a vineyard with a hedge or a nation with a wall is indeed one that we find given in the Bible and given in the Old Testament as an image of what God has done for the Hebrew people, Hebrew people as he made them into a nation. And so in Isaiah chapter 5 we read, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a winepress as well. In Isaiah 5, the creation of a vineyard with a hedge, with fruit, with protection and with belonging is offered as an ideal image of what it means for God to have taken the Hebrew people and made them a nation. We have got to understand the appeal. Yet, as both Isaiah in chapter 5 and later Jesus in Mark 12 makes clear, sometimes trouble can arise in such a paradise. In Mark chapter 5, sorry, Isaiah chapter 5, the trouble that arises is that the vineyard itself turns out to be somehow rotten. In Mark chapter 12, it's a little bit different. What seems to happen in Mark chapter 12 is that the people who have been put in charge, particularly the leaders of the people, make up their mind that what they have is a given, a right, rather than a gift. And as those in charge of the, the vineyard, the walled nation, they increasingly see it as their responsibility, sometimes out of self-interest, to protect it. And indeed it becomes a major concern of theirs to protect it from others. Indeed, this concern to protect the vineyard, the walled nation, becomes so great that it is used to justify the degradation dehumanization and violence carried out against others all in the name of protecting their rights within the land of the vineyard paradoxically we learn that this protectionist strategy rather than bringing security is the very thing that will bring destruction upon them
I'm actually not seeking to be political or even prophetic. I wouldn't claim such. I'm just expanding the parable. A parable which Jesus told against the religious leaders in response to their challenge to his authority to teach people about God. Unlike many other parables, this parable does invite us to see it as an allegory. We can't help but when we hear it think about God is the one who creates the vineyard and owns it. We cannot help think in the light of Isaiah 5 that indeed the vineyard is Israel. We cannot help but think in the light of Isaiah 5 that the harvest that is desired is indeed justice and goodness. We cannot help but think that the tenants tend to be not simply the people of Israel in Mark chapter 12, but actually the leaders of Israel to whom the parable is addressed. We cannot help but think that the servants who are sent to get the harvest are the prophets sent by God. And we cannot, of course, help but think that the Son is Jesus Christ himself. The parable, as Jesus tells it, is almost self-fulfilling. Because by telling it, He intensifies the opposition towards him that leads to the death that he says will be their very downfall. Or to put that somewhat differently. The parable, as it is told in context, leaves its listeners with only two options. Either they can recognize him and repent, or they can follow the course that they are following which is a course of opposition to him. A course which he warns them will ultimately lead in their losing the vineyard and it being given to others. And with what I think is a bit of rhetorical brilliance, Jesus, of course, finishes the parable by quoting, as you would expect, from Scripture. He quotes from Psalm 118, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. One of the fun things that happened to me over Christmas was some of my friends from way back in our teenage years, when we spent a lot of time together, either in the Scripture Union group the school or at the youth club in Anderson Baptist Church began to post pictures from that era. I did look like a young David Cassidy. Some of you wouldn't even know who David Cassidy is. I may put up the picture and uh, it was fun to see some of these pictures as we spent a lot of time together as a group. There was a group of at least 25 of us who were associated both with the Scripture Union Group in Uddingston Grammar School, and we also tended to gather around the youth club in Uddingston Baptist Church. We were a mixture of church kids, and those of us, including me, who had been converted and kind of entered into this and had our own views about how the world should be run. And it was a really interesting dynamic. And when, when I was looking at some of the pictures, we could identify the girls from the Nazarene Church, The Baptist boys were always very pleased to see them. The folks from the Apostolic Church, some from the Church of Scotland, 
some from a local brethren church. We were all in there in this kind of mixture of people who were one way or another trying to follow Jesus Christ. And as a consequence of that, we would go round one another's churches, particularly in the evening service. And because of that, somewhere locked in my memory banks, I can hear several sermons about what the cornerstone actually was. And I seem to remember all of these sermons in which the preacher would take a a long time, or perhaps it just felt like that, they would take a long time to describe the meaning of the cornerstone in Hebrew architecture. Now the difficulty was, despite the time they took to do this, they clearly couldn't agree. Because for some of them, the cornerstone was the foundation stone that you put in first and you build everything else upon. Maybe you have your own view on this. For some of them, it's a capstone that kind of goes at the top, the bit in the middle of the arch that holds it all together, the headstone. For others, it's a final stone that's put in the corner at the top of a building when everything else is built and it's held together. I must have heard these sermons. I can tell you that as a 16 year old boy, this wasn't the major issue in my discipleship. (laughs) But nevertheless, these were the sermons. And here is the truth. I actually don't care. (laughs) Instead, I love the quotation from R.T. Franz who writes this. Our ignorance of Hebrew architectural terminology at this point, however, does not affect the sense of the quotation. The one who was rejected has become the most important of all. To be sure, in this context, the religious leaders didn't have our advantage. They didn't know about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that was to come. When you read a parable, you bring it to your background knowledge. But Mark makes it very clear. They did know it was about them. Before, however, we place ourselves as onlookers, enjoying their discomfort, we need to hear these words from the 19th century Baptist preacher Alexander McLaren for speaking about the leaders to whom Jesus spoke. He says this, alas, they have descendants still in many of us who put away his claims, even as we secretly recognize him, in order that we may do as we like and not let him meddle with us. It's not enough to say, but it's enough to say here today that in some senses Mark chapter 12 addresses the issues of religious or perhaps national leadership. There's more to it than that, but there's no doubt that Mark 12 was addressed to the leaders. Yet I'm not sure that the things that have come up in Mark chapter 12 actually appear in the very popular three, or is it five, or is it seven, or is it ten most critical tips that we need to know to be leaders today. I can understand why what Mark chapter 12 says doesn't really come up in that kind of good advice. 
because some of what Mark chapter 12 does is offer very meddling ideas about leadership. Ideas such as the fact that leadership doesn't actually exist for itself. That leaders do come and go. That that which we have as leaders, we never own, we only steward. We never possess, we only hold. And it is always a gift and never a given. Ideas such as the fact that what we should be seeking for in leadership is to see the growth of justice and goodness. That stewardship implies responsibility and faithlessness sooner or later will bring judgment. Ideas that God has something to say into our leadership and our lives and practices through others. And indeed, Mark 12 maybe also has an idea that however concerned and rightly concerned that we may be for those for whom we have a responsibility to keep safe and secure, this should never be achieved through the degradation, dehumanization and violence carried out against others. I can understand why this stuff doesn't make it into the top 10 tips for being a leader. Jesus is so difficult. We want strategy, he wants ethics. But that seems to be the way that it goes. Perhaps above all, however, the most meddling thing about leadership in this parable is this. When all is said and done, and this applies to everyone. Everyone. When all was said and done, all authority is ultimately subject to the authority of God as expressed through his Son, Jesus Christ, and will be held accountable in that light. For we marvel at this fact. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Amen. Let's pray together. In praying, I want to use some words written by Kathy Galloway when she was leader of Iona community. So let's pray. Let us pray for those whose lives are in the wilderness, those who are hungry and thirsty, those who are alone. Those who are prevented from being the people God made them to be. For the stone the builders rejected is made the cornerstone. Let us pray for those who will not receive them. Those who are not listened to. Those under constant threat. 
for the stone the builders rejected is made the cornerstone. Let us pray for those whose calling is denied them, those who cannot speak their name, those whose gifts are not recognized or affirmed, including in the church. Let us pray for those who are judged and condemned and those who are blinded by their own self-righteousness. And let us pray for ourselves, for the stone the builders rejected is made the cornerstone. O Christ, you lived as an ordinary human, not in style, but simple. Yet you caused uproar and questions wherever you went. You drew expectations from a hungry crowd and you brought hidden conflicts to light. We pray, may we who can be swayed by the crowd and who can avoid conflict stand instead firm in the gospel of justice and peace and follow in your way with compassion and in solidarity with the poor and the excluded. For those the builders rejected is made the cornerstone.